Welcome to Wonderland, the podcast where I go down the rabbit hole to research things you may be curious about. My name is Ami, and I'll be your guide on this trip to Wonderland. Hi there, my Wonderlings. Thank you for joining me today. As you have likely surmised if you've been listening to this podcast since the first episode, I am a very curious person. I constantly find myself wondering. I wonder. No, no, we're not ready for that yet. I constantly find myself wondering about a variety of different subjects, some social, some scientific, some historic, usually interesting, but even some mundane. And since you're here listening to me, I'm guessing you and I have that in common. Curiosity is also something we share with some of the world's greatest thinkers. Albert Einstein asserted, I have no special talents. I'm only passionately curious. And he was a literal genius. As I thought about Albert Einstein and his curiosity and his intelligence, I began to wonder. I 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 wonder. Intelligence is often spoken of in terms of IQ, and that's exactly the rabbit hole we're going to venture down today. So first things first. What does IQ stand for? Uh, intelligence quiz? Yes. No, IQ, intelligence... I have no idea. Um, question, no. Okay, yeah, we'll go with that. Something in Latin? Yeah. IQ is intelligence quotient. IQ is short for intelligence quotient and is a numeric score derived from some specific standardized test intended to assess human intelligence. While no doubt standardized tests have been around for eons, who do you think came up with the concept of or coined the term IQ? Oh, I have no idea. I guess if I were to guess, I would say Sir Isaac Newton back in the 15, 1600s. I don't even know when Isaac Newton was born. Einstein. Einstein, um, young. I don't know, when did Einstein live? <laughs> 1923. The usage of IQ as an abbreviation is attributed to German psychologist and philosopher William Stern in 1912. Stern used the German word Intelligenzquotient to describe a scoring method for intelligence tests at the University of Breslau. But while Stern is who coined the term IQ, he was only building upon concepts that were already at the forefront of child developmental psychology. The person behind the first practical IQ test was a French psychologist, Alfred Binet. Binet didn't actually start out as a psychologist at all, but rather was pursuing a career in law when he became so interested in the works of a different man, Sir Francis Galton, that he abandoned his law career altogether to pursue psychology. Sir Francis Galton, the founder of differential psychology, was among the earliest academics to publish works regarding human intelligence. Galton asserted that intelligence was hereditary and could be tested based on how people performed on sensory motor tasks. While Galton believed that intelligence could be tested, there was no formal test for measuring IQ until Binet, along with his colleagues Victor Henry and Theodore Simon, published the Binet-Simon test in 1905. Uh, it is a, well, it's a, it's, it's sort of a standardized test to give an idea of Someone's potential intelligence rating uh, using things like memory or uh, spatial intelligence. So questions about size and patterns and things like that. Also, uh, 
there will be questions about um, math in the in, in the form of problem solving, that sort of thing. Binet was a member of the Free Society for the Psychological Study of the Child, a group of people who were tasked with determining tests that could be administered to children who were thought to possibly have learning disabilities. At that time in France, the government had laws requiring all children to attend school, but needed a way to identify children who needed extra help. Binet and his colleagues began developing questions that focused on areas such as attention, problem solving, and memory, which were not explicitly taught in the classroom. They comprised a variety of tasks they deemed representative of a typical child's ability at various ages based on the duo's many years observing children in their natural setting as part of their studies. They tested their measurement on a sample of 50 children, 10 children over five age groups. The children in the study were identified by their teachers as being average for their age. The purpose of this scale of normal functioning was to compare children's mental abilities relative to their average peers. The scale had 30 tasks of increasing difficulty. The easiest tasks could be completed by nearly everyone and were basic things like following a beam of light or talking back to the examiner. The hardest tasks were to answer questions like, My neighbor has been receiving strange visitors. He has received in turn a doctor, a lawyer, and then a priest. What is taking place? So once a child had completed the test, how is their IQ measured? A yardstick. Yeah. I know that there, there's tests. I'm sure there's been of various kinds that, based on your answers, measure measure that value. I want to say it's like, it's not that big. It's maybe 200. I don't even think it's that. Girl, are you Googling? <laughs> Put it away. Uh in the uh, in the uh, uh, hundreds. Well, it's a numeric system based on the, if I'm remembering correctly, it's based on the answers that are attempted, not necessarily questions that are not attempted. So you there, there's a point system awarded to the questions that are answered. Originally, the test score would reveal the child's mental age. A 10-year-old child who passed all tasks typically passed by a 10-year-old, but nothing more, would have the mental age that exactly matched his chronological age of 10. The IQ score was determined by dividing a person's mental age score by the person's chronological age, both expressed in terms of years and months. The resulting fraction, or quotient, was multiplied by 100 to obtain the IQ score. For modern IQ tests, the raw score is transformed to a normal distribution with a mean 100 and a standard deviation 15. This results in approximately two-thirds of the population scoring between 85 and 115, around 2% each above 130 and below 70. This is normal distribution. The practice of grouping human intelligence as measured by IQ tests into categories such as average or superior is called IQ classification. I guess gifted is anything considered like in the 130s and up. 160 and above is genius. Anything under 80 is considered dull. Uh, 80 to 100 might be considered low intelligence. And then over 100 to 115 or so is average intelligence. And then, or 100 to 110. And then anything from like, 120 up is advanced intelligence. I went down a really interesting rabbit hole on IQ classification, so enjoy this minor tangent with me. When IQ testing was first created, 
Lewis Terman, American psychologist, academic, proponent of eugenics, and keep that in the back of your mind, we'll come back to it, and creator of the Stanford Binet Intelligence Scale, which was an American adaptation of the Binet-Simon test, recognized that most child IQ scores come out to approximately the same score regardless of testing procedure. IQ tests are generally reliable enough that most people 10 years of age or older have similar scores throughout life. The Stanford Binet Intelligence Scale, for example, has a reliability of 0.97 to 0.98 across all age groups. Despite commonality across the different types of IQ tests, we've discussed Binet-Simon and Stanford Binet, but there are oodles more. The IQ classification definitions vary somewhat. The most current version of the Stanford Binet test is as such. An IQ range of 140 plus is classified as very gifted or highly advanced. 130 to 140 is gifted or very advanced. 120 to 129 is superior. 110 to 119 is high average. 90 to 109 is average. 80 to 89 is low average. 70 to 79 is borderline impaired or delayed. 55 to 69 is mildly impaired or delayed and 40 to 54 is moderately impaired or delayed. The Weschler Intelligence Scales, which are the most widely used and popular assessment in the English-speaking world, were developed by David Weschler in 1939 and were based on earlier IQ tests. The Weschler Scale uses a very similar, but slightly different scale. On the Weschler Scale, the IQ range of 130 and above is classified as extremely high. 120 to 129 is very high. 110 to 119 is high average. 90 to 109 is average, 80 to 89 is low average, 70 to 79 is very low, and 69 and below is extremely low. Interestingly, you may have noted that neither of these popular IQ tests listed genius as a classification. While we now use terms like extremely high IQ or gifted or advanced, early classifications did use the term genius to describe the highest classification of IQ. Francis Galton, yes, the same one responsible for Binet's change in career, wrote a book called Hereditary Genius. Galton believed that the hereditary influences on eminent achievement are strong. We can thank Galton for the term nature versus nurture. He also hypothesized that there was a correlation between intelligence and other observable traits such as reflexes, muscle grip, and head size. Galton invented the term eugenics in 1883, introducing it in his book, Inquiries into the Human Faculty and Its Development. Galton wrote widely on genius, and when Lewis Terman revised the Binet-Simon test into the Stanford-Binet test, his classification also included genius. A score above 140 was considered near genius or genius. At university, Terman entitled his doctoral dissertation, Genius and Stupidity, a study of some of the intellectual processes of seven bright and seven stupid boys. His interest in the study of genius and gifted children was a lifelong interest. In fact, he penned five volumes of his Genetic Studies of Genius, which was a longitudinal study on gifted children. The study was initiated in 1921, and Terman followed children with extremely high IQs in childhood throughout their lives. The fifth volume examined the children in a 35-year follow-up and looked at the gifted group during midlife. His study revealed that gifted and genius children were in at least as good as average health and had normal personalities. Few of them demonstrated the previously held negative stereotypes of gifted children. He found that gifted children did not fit the existing stereotypes often associated with them. They were not weak and sickly social misfits. In fact, they were generally taller, in better health, better developed physically, and better adapted socially than other children. The gifted children thrive both socially and academically. 
in relationships, they were less likely to divorce. Additionally, those in the gifted group were generally successful in their careers, many receiving awards recognizing their achievements. Fun fact, while I was down this rabbit hole, the participants of Terman's study were called termites. And though Terman has long since passed, the study is still supported by Stanford University and will continue until the last of the termites withdraws from the study or passes away. Terman believed that his findings were further evidence to support eugenics. I told you we'd come back to this, and if I'm being honest, it was kind of a scary place to come back to. I mentioned earlier that Galton invented the term eugenics in 1883. He wrote as a way of introduction to his book, Inquiries into the Human Faculty and His Development. This book's intention is to touch on various topics more or less connected with that of the cultivation of race, or, as we might call it, with eugenic questions, and to present the results of several of my own separate investigations. This is with questions bearing on what is termed in Greek, eugenes, named in good in stock, hereditarily endowed with noble qualities. This and the allied word eugenia, etc., are equally applicable to men, brutes, and plants. We greatly want a brief word to express the science of improving stock which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which, especially in the case of man, takes cognizance of all influences that tend in however remote a degree to give the more suitable races a strain of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. The word eugenics would sufficiently express the idea, it is at least a neater word, and more generalized than the vericulture which I once ventured to use. Simplified, eugenics is a set of practices and beliefs aimed at improving the genetic quality of the human population by excluding people in groups judged to be inferior and promoting those judged to be superior. Eugenics, unfortunately, has played an ugly part in history. Here in America, Henry H. Goddard, psychologist and eugenicist, published his own version of the Binet-Simon test and extended it to use in public schools, to immigration, and even in the court of law. Galton promoted eugenics through selective breeding for positive traits, but Goddard's movement was to eliminate undesirable traits. He used the term feeble-minded to refer to people who did not perform well on his test and argued that feeble-mindedness was caused by heredity, and feeble-minded people should be prevented from giving birth either by institutional isolation or sterilization surgeries. Initially, sterilization targeted the disabled specifically, but eventually extended to poor people also. Guys, this is bad enough as just a concept, but unfortunately, it gets worse. Goddard and eugenics supporters utilized the test to push for laws for forced sterilization. Different states adopted the sterilization laws at different paces, and in 1927, the law's constitutionality were upheld by the Supreme Court in a ruling, Buck v. Bell, and more than 60,000 people were forced to go through sterilization in the United States. And now to look at what's been described as one of the worst Supreme Court rulings in history. In the 1927 case, Buck v. Bell, the court upheld a statute that enabled the state of Virginia to sterilize so-called mental defectives, or imbeciles. The person in question was Carrie Buck, a poor young woman then confined in the Virginia State Colony for epileptics and the feeble-minded, though she was neither epileptic nor mentally disabled. In the landmark decision, eight judges ruled that the state of Virginia had the right to sterilize her. Her mother, 
Emma, as well as Carrie's daughter Vivian, then only eight months old, were deemed similarly deficient. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. wrote the majority opinion, concluding, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. The decision resulted in 60 to 70,000 sterilizations of Americans considered unfit to reproduce. The Supreme Court decision had its origins in the eugenics movement, then thriving in the United States. California's sterilization program was so effective that Nazis turned to the government for advice on how to prevent the birth of the unfit. Where did the Nazis fit into this picture, Adam Cohen? Yeah, so one of the shocking things about that is that the Nazis actually followed us. We were the leaders in eugenic sterilization. Indiana passed a eugenic sterilization law in 1907, well before the rise of the Nazi party. They were looking to America. And one of the villains in my book is a man named Harry Laughlin, who runs the, who ran the eugenics record office on Long Island. And he was in correspondence with the Nazi scientists throughout this whole period. They were looking to him for advice about how to set up a eugenic sterilization program. He wrote with pride in his eugenics magazine that they based the Nazi eugenic law on, an, on his American law. Thankfully, the U.S. eugenics movement lost much of its momentum in the 1940s with the rise of the Nazi party during World War II. So other than the ugly concept of eugenics, what is the purpose of administering IQ tests today? Binet, Simon, and even Terman were all forthright in conceding that their test had limitations. Binet stressed the remarkable diversity of intelligence and the need to study using qualitative measures. Binet also stressed that intellectual development progressed at variable rates and could be influenced by the environment, and therefore, intelligence was malleable. But still today, tests are taken to determine a person's intelligence. Children are tested to determine if they're gifted. Gifted children are placed on a different academic track than their peers who received average scores. Children with lower scores are given additional support to help them succeed. So while the test should not be a singular indicator of intelligence, they are a good tool for helping to ensure children receive the most impactful education they can. Have you ever taken an IQ test? I took one, like a free one online. I took one years and years and years ago as a, like, as a kid. So I don't know if that counts. Did you learn if you guys were geniuses or not? Uh, I was not a genius. No. I don't remember what mine was. Yes. I took... An IQ test, I don't know, 30, 30 years ago. I was probably 13, 14 years old. Many folks have taken an IQ test online. Some are more legitimate than others. Online ones always say I'm a genius, but like, it's like a picture of a pig and says, what is this? And I'm like, pig. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> got it. <laughs> Some folks were tested as children. Still, many other folks have never been tested. If you're interested... You can take a practice test on Mensa.org. That's M-E-N-S-A dot O-R-G. Interestingly, even people who have never taken an official test often have an estimated IQ score assigned to them. So who has the highest known or estimated IQ? I think Albert Einstein's was suppo supposedly pretty high in the 160s or 170s. Um, Stephen Hawking? Oh, you might be right. Maybe, maybe Tesla. I'll throw in Tesla just to have a different name. Albert Einstein has one sixty. I don't know. There are kids that you hear on the news or on the new. I guess on the news that there there are kids out there that are savants that have IQs in the upper one sixties to one seventies. Did you guess Einstein? Well, the guy is clearly a genius. 
And while he never took an IQ test, his IQ is estimated at around 160 based on his historical records. William James Sittis, a child prodigy whose IQ was estimated to be anywhere between 200 and 300, attended Harvard University at 11 years old and graduated at the age of 16. Leonardo da Vinci is estimated to have an IQ score ranging from 180 to 220. The highest recorded IQ score goes to Marilyn Voss Savant, an American magazine columnist who also holds a Guinness World Book of Record for her 228 IQ score. IQ isn't necessarily indicative of a person's lot in life, but let's look at the estimated and sometimes known IQ of some big names. What do you think Einstein's IQ is? 150. 168. 162. 165. We already discussed, while he never took an official test, his IQ is estimated to be around 160. What about Stephen Hawking? Who's that? Really? I'm just kidding. Oh. Hello, 169. 180. Oh, yeah, Stephen Hawking. Um, I don't know, 173? 201. Clearly a brilliant man, and I couldn't find where he was officially tested. But largely, estimates have his IQ also at around 160. Elon Musk? 173. 14? No, I'm kidding. He's, he's probably in the 135, 140 range. 162. See, I don't think it's that high. I'm going to go, I'll go 145. This is another one with no public record of an official test, but his IQ is believed to be between 150 and 155. Bill Gates. 80. <laughs> 60. Uh, I would assume probably in the 140s to 150s. 163. Another one with no official test, but estimates based on his SAT scores put him around 150 to 155. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, that's an, that's an interesting one because Steve Jobs didn't really develop what is modern Apple. He was just the... Uh, he was the 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 fuel and marketing, um, but I probably one thirties to one fifties somewhere in that range. His IQ is unknown, but it's estimated to be between one fifty and one sixty. Snoop Dogg, one fifty. This is known. This is known. Okay, um, Snoop Dogg. Let me channel my Snoop Dogg. It's the one and only Eagle Double G. Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg. Mm, 125. 132. Well, um, he is extremely quick. I think that he's very intelligent. I think Snoop Dogg is probably in the 140s. You'd probably guess this was going to be higher than average since I included him, and you'd be right. Snoop Dogg boasts an IQ of 147. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Hey, I think this guy's a couple cans short of a six-pack. That's you, Anita. <laughs> Uh, Schwarzenegger, I, I think is also, uh, probably in the one he's, he's above average. So I would say he's probably in the one twenties to one thirties. 132. 120. 167. Austrian born American actor turned politician. The Terminator has an above average IQ of 135. When a person scores in the top 2% of the general population on an approved intelligence test, they can join an elite group of people in an organization called Mensa. What is Mensa? Mm. Why do I know that word? Mm. Is it one of the tests? Or the is scale? it what IQ stands for? <laughs> right? Is it the scale? Whatever it's called? Oh, Mensa is an organization for extremely intelligent 
uh, individuals. Um, it's sort of like a club. I can't remember what Mensa stands for, but, um, but I know that if you are a member of Mensa, then you are considered to be of the superior intelligences of the human race. Mensa is not an acronym at all. It's Latin for table. So named because Mensa is a round table society where ethnicity, color, creed, national origin, age, politics, educational, and social background are all irrelevant. Currently, there are around 150,000 Mensans in over 90 countries and on every continent except Antarctica. Anyone can apply to Mensa if they score in the top 2% of the population on an approved test. Some big names who are Mensa members include actresses Mia Bialik and Gina Davis, actors Steve Martin and David Duchovny, radio and television personality Eric Casilius, author Joyce Carol Oates, and Mark Presson, creator of Minecraft. The youngest member of Mensa in the United States is a two-year-old girl in Kentucky named Isla McNabb. That's a really cute story, and I'll be sure to link it on the website. So, is IQ score a good indicator of intelligence? No. I think IQ is just your knowledge on answering questions and your knowledge on just, like, factors of sentences. But even if you get a low IQ, I think you can still be smart at other things. No. No, I think it's your ability to learn, but I don't think it tells how smart you yeah. are necessarily. Retaining what you know necessarily isn't. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's a good indicator of intelligence because people test differently and under certain pressures, despite the fact that they may know how to place a round object into a round hole, uh, under pressure of time and testing, there's the potential that they would mess that up. So I, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a great way of testing people's intelligence. I think it's fair to say that an IQ score may be a good indicator of intelligence, but it's certainly not a singular indicator. People can excel in different types of intelligence, but struggle with others. There's the argument for street smarts versus book smarts. Many psychologists agree that there are multiple types of intelligence, such as Gardner and his multiple intelligence theory. And the IQ test isn't designed to consider all of them. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and learned a thing or two this week. And until next time, be safe, be kind, and be like Einstein. Stay curious. The Welcome to Wonderland podcast is copyrighted by Amy Bland and is part of Big Media. This podcast was recorded in the podcast studio at GOT Sound Studio in Lexington, South Carolina. Any thoughts or opinions expressed as part of this production are those of the host unless otherwise indicated. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. Please follow, like, and share the podcast. Find us on Facebook at Welcome to Wonderland the podcast and on X, the app formerly known as Twitter at Wonderland underscore pod. Check out behind the scenes moments and other videos on TikTok at Wonderland pod. And finally, check out pictures, additional information, and go further down the rabbit hole on our website at www.wtwlpod.com. To submit corrections, additional information, or requests for episodes, please email the host at welcome to Wonderland the pod at gmail.com.
So if you get it, if you're already ha- if you have at high, are you in Mensa or do you still have to you join? You have to apply, yeah. <laughs> so you have to say, oh, okay, just I'm smart. There. I want to hang out with other smart people. Yeah, you just show up at the club. What do they do? <laughs> I don't know. Probably, I can't imagine. Can you imagine just how unbearable that club right. would be? Yeah. Well, certainly, there's no f-ing and no. F-ing, so, so you're out, obviously. <laughs> Some psychedelics can expand your mind. That's true. Maybe they sit around doing psychedelics. Maybe we'll just start our own club. Right. Let's do it. The preceding podcast is a product of Big Media and copyright 2023. All rights reserved.